Good morning, family. I am so glad to see you. God bless you. I love you so much, and I'm so thankful that you're here to worship the Lord with us today. You know, I'm going to wrap up a series that we've been calling True North, and I hope it's going to be, this message is just going to tie everything together. True North had to do with the fact of that when we use a compass, the compass basically works off of knowing where True North is at. Even the the sailors who use the um, compasses that they used and the protractors and things that they used like that when they were sailing the oceans, they always needed to know how to be able to discover and find true north to get to where they were going. So we've looked at the Bible alone. The Bible helps us to know what true north is. If you're facing true north, then you know that we're saved by grace alone. We're going to talk about through faith alone this morning. And then we give all the glory to God alone and that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus Christ is God. That's been the series that we've in. And so today I want to go into this topic of faith, and I want us to understand when this message is over this morning, what it means to be saved by faith. What does it mean for us when we say we've been saved by faith? And why was that such an important pronouncement? You're all familiar with the story of how Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Church. And one of the great controversial statements that caused the rift, caused the shrift between Roman Catholicism and what came to be known as Protestantism was this fact that we're saved by faith through grace alone and what that meant. It was a part of those 95 theses that, that um, Martin Luther nailed to the door. Also that the church didn't give us the Bible, but God gave us the Bible, and that the Bible is inerrant and without error. And so we want to just kind of tie that together this morning. The simple way to address this, I think, is to go back to an argument that was taking place when I was a young man in the late 70s and the early 80s. There were those who were concerned about what they called cheap grace. And that was people who, who said, who made a profession of faith without really following through and living for Jesus. So they said that if you were going to have saving faith, it had to include that you were going to follow Christ as Lord. Well, most of us would not have a problem with that statement. But then there were other people who were not necessarily into cheap grace, but they go, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute, because now you're making following Jesus a work. So it's very important, <coughs> pardon me, that we remember that we're saved by grace alone through faith. And so that we don't make faith become a work. And this became an argument between those of free grace and those of what they call themselves lordship salvation. I have two books in my library. They're not really old, but it's the way books would go. They would be considered old books because most of the time people don't read old books anymore and anything that was not written within the last five years we consider an old book. Well, these are two books written by two great theologians that I have in my library that really had a profound impact upon me. I didn't know the number of theologians that I know now. I didn't know the number of good Christian thinkers that I know at that point in my life. And so as I would have these conversations, I found out that people would kind of get confused, and I finally came to the conviction 
that the problem revolved around the word save. What does it mean to be saved? I almost entitled this message, What Does It Mean to Be Saved? But that would have missed the point of trying to help us understand why those core doctrines of the Protestant Reformation were so important. You see, both sides were both basically arguing this. This is the minimum that you have to do to be saved. That was the basic argument. One was that, you know, when you said you had faith and you confessed your sins, it meant you were going to follow Jesus. The other said, wait a minute. No, we agree that you should follow Jesus, but you can't say you have to follow Jesus because that means you're making it a work. The problem, I think, came down to defining the word saved. You see, the way they were both defining it was, what's the minimum that I've got to do in order to be saved? Now, that may not sound like a lot to you until I refine it and I rephrase it and recast it this way. Suppose when I went in to interview for a job, I said to you, you were going to be my employer, and I said, what's the minimum amount of work that I have to do in order to keep my job? Well, you know right then I'm a loser. You know I don't want to hire this guy because he's just going to try to squeak by. He's not going to be interested in helping me have a successful business. Or let's say that I'm running for a political office in Downriver or in Brownstown or Flat Rock or Woodhaven, wherever. Let's say I'm running for political office and I say to you, look, I'm going to do just the bare minimum that it takes You know, I'm not going to have a secretary to answer your calls. I'm not really going to be answering emails. But I will show up at the Capitol, and I'll vote, and I'll get my check, and I'll come home, and y'all vote for me. How many of you know I would lose that election right away? Because I'm not interested in serving you. I'm interested in basically doing the minimum that I can do to get by and still be elected as an elected representative. Or, or let me just use one more example. Suppose the night that I proposed to Becky in Lakeland, Florida in 1975. Supp- excuse me, 76. I don't want to get in trouble. Suppose I had said to Becky that night, suppose I'd said this. Honey, what is the minimum amount of fidelity that you want from me in order to be your husband? You know, I can tell you right then, she would have never said to me, you know, if I had said, do I need to be faithful 300 days a year? Do I need to be faithful 350? What if I'm just faithful 360 and one day a year, you know, you give me grace and I can farm around all I want? She would have never said yes, because what I was doing is looking for the minimum. And when people are talking like this, what they're basically doing is saying, what is the minimum that's going to be required of me to get into heaven? So the focus is upon our faith and not upon what it means to be saved. I challenge you because there's nowhere in the gospel that you can find where Jesus began to preach This is the minimum that you have to do in order to be saved. As a youth pastor, and probably Pastor Corey, you've had the same question asked of you. You know where I'm going, don't you? As a youth pastor, the favorite question that came to me from kids was this, how far is too far? In other words, it really translates, how far can I go before I really cross the line? Now, don't look at me so smug because you used to be a teenager and that same thought crossed your mind as well. How far is too far? What's the minimum, you know, that I've got to do? 
And my, one of my professors in college, Brother Bob Elliott, said, he said, you know, lust can't wait five minutes, but love can wait for an eternity. And that's the difference, the I, way I always answer those questions. But Jesus never says, this is the minimum that you have to do. Look at me. If the minimum that you have to do is what you want in life, you don't want to go to heaven. If the minimum is what you want to do in life, then you want to go to hell. If the minimum is all you want, then you will never be happy in heaven where God deserves all the glory and God gets all the praise and everything we do is for the glory and the honor of God and we rejoice and we exalt in Jesus Christ. I think it's the reason, one of the reasons that Jesus said that narrow is the way that leads to life and broad is the path that leads to destruction because more people want to do the minimum. This is the minimum that I have to do to keep my job. The minimum that I have to do to keep my marriage and my family intact. The minimum that I have to to do to stay elected. But Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you take up your cross and follow me. Faith, saving faith in the Bible is never presented to you and I as the minimum amount of truth that we have to believe. Saving faith is always presented like this. If you want to know life, if you want to be free from your sins, then follow me. Saving faith is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not faith plus works. It's just simply saving faith. The Bible says, now listen, the Bible says that Abraham believed God and just believed him, and God credited that to him as righteousness. Now, those of you that know me or went with me through the book of Genesis when I went chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the book of Genesis, you know I'm not a real big fan of Abraham. Now, Please don't feel bad at me, but I kind of, you know, I admired his faith, but I wasn't a big fan of Abraham. I mean, he did a great thing. He believed God. He left the Ur of Chaldees to follow God's voice. His father may have actually had more faith than Abraham had, but he just had it in idols. You see, people have faith, and it's where you put your faith. But the very next thing we're told about Abraham is when he's making this journey of faith, he throws his wife under the bus. You know, Pharaoh sees his wife and says, ooh la la, I think I'd like to have her as a part of my harem. And Abraham says, here, you can have her. You can have her. She's my sister. She's not my wife. He just throws her under the bus. Well, he does that again later in life. God tells him, you know, you're going to have a son. You know, you and Sarah are going to have a son. And, and Abraham you know, he gets older and he hasn't had the boy yet. He hasn't had the son yet. And one day, Sarah comes to him and she says, Abraham, look, I am way past the age of childbearing. And if we're going to have a son, maybe we need to help God out. Here, take my young, beautiful slave girl, Hagar, and go have a relationship with her. And Abraham scratches his head. And he says, well, you know, honey, if you insist, if you really want me to have intimacy with this young, voluptuous girl, I will do it just to please you. And he goes in, he impregnates. She has no choice. She has no ability to say no. She's basically raped by Abraham. And she goes and she is impregnated by Abraham. And they have a son that's going to bring a lot of grief to Abraham's heart. Don't ever try to get ahead of God. God doesn't need your help or my help. 
And later when Abraham and Sarah are both past the age of childbearing, so that Abraham and Sarah can't get the glory, only God can get the glory, God shows up one day and says, Abraham, you're going to have a son. Abraham really didn't believe it, and Sarah just kind of laughed in scorn. And God says to Sarah, Sarah, you laughed. And Sarah goes, no, I didn't. And God goes, yes, you did. No, I didn't, God. And God goes, yes, you did. It's like listening to your teenagers argue sometime or listening to a, a married couple argue sometime. God says, yes, you did. No, I did it. And yet God fulfills his word and they have a son and they name him Isaac. Now you say, what is the point of all that? God still called Abraham his friend, not because of his faith, not because of his works, but simply because Abraham took him at his word and had this growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Look at me. The salvation is not in the quality of my faith. It's in the quality of my Savior. Salvation is not in how big my faith is. Salvation is, is how big and how awesome and how strong my God is. Salvation is not in whether or not I have great faith or little faith. Salvation is in the fact of what Jesus Christ did for me at Calvary. He came to save us from our sins. Can you say amen right there? And that's why the angel, we're getting ready for Advent now. That's why the angel said to Mary in Matthew 1.21, or said to the shepherds, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's a good place to say amen right there. He will save his people from their sins. And then in John 17, 3, speaking about saving, Jesus says, as this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. You see, to be saved means to know Jesus. To be saved means that you enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. There is a profession of relationship, but also a possession of relationship. So you have this profession of faith, Jesus Christ is Lord, but you have this possession of a relationship. To be saved means to have eternal life, according to what Jesus just said in John to be saved is to have eternal life where you are living and walking and interacting and talking with Jesus Christ every single day here and now and not just waiting till we get into eternity. The question that we should ask ourselves is not if you should die tonight, are you going to heaven or hell? That is not the question to ask. And that's the question that most of us have been asked at some point in our life. If you should die tonight, are you going to heaven or hell? The question is, are you going to trust Jesus Christ with all of your life? And are you going to live for him? Are you going to fellowship with him? Will you follow him? Will you do what he said? To know him is to follow him and to have this personal one-on-one -on -one relationship with Christ. Now, let me see if I can illustrate like this. I professed my love for Becky. I did it at an altar. I swore to be faithful to her with my body and with my mind as well. I faced her. I held her hands. I took her hands in front of the ministers, in front of our friends and family, and I made this profession of a relationship. Becky beautifully looked at me. She made the same profession of love. Today, we are in a possession of a relationship 
a possession that has grown and matured in love and, and faithfulness, fidelity. It has grown and matured in joy and understanding. They were happy living together. There was a profession, but there was a possession. But I've been in a number of people's homes who made a profession of love, but they are not in a possession of a relationship. As a matter of fact, they are legally married, but they are spiritually divorced. They have separate bedrooms. They have separate lives. And for various financial reasons and other reasons, it would cost them more to divorce than it would to just live together legally, but they have no possession of a relationship. As a matter of fact, they really don't like each other. They really don't do life together. They have two separate relationships. There is a profession, but no possession. But when you make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, it's not how good you are. It's not how big your faith is. God takes you into his arms, and he loves you, and no matter what comes, hell or high water, Jesus Christ will never forsake or abandon or leave us. That's another good place to say amen right there. He will never abandon or leave us. So if I'm going to trust him, how do I do that? James says, humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts, for it has the power to save your souls. What do you do? You just like Abraham. I mean, he was still growing. I mean, he still made a lot of dumb mistakes. And you may make, I, I don't want you to. I'm not giving you permission to make stupid mistakes. But I am telling you that if you do, God never gives up on you. Humbly accept the word of God. It has the power to save you. What's he saying? Trusting God will save you. Trusting God, not your works, not how good you are. Now, I want you to understand why this truth is so vital. This is, when I use the word vital here, I'm thinking of vital signs like you get when you go to the doctor or the hospital. If your oxygen is low, your pulse is low or too high, they know something is really wrong. So there are vital signs to physical life, but there are some vital signs to spiritual life. So listen to these two verses of Scripture very carefully. So we are made right with God through faith, and not by obeying the law. Would you read that with me? Because I want this to get into your soul. We are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. Now notice, no works involved. Just simply, faith is trusting God's word. Then I want us to go to the book of James, chapter 2 and verse 23. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God. That's all he did. He believed God. Remember I said his father may have had more faith than Abraham did, but he had it in idols. Abraham believed God. He left Ur. He left this brutal society of paganism and idol worship, and he followed God. And you've got to understand, all that begins to follow in the Bible, there is nothing like it in history comparatively to the Word of God. Nothing. Even Atheists and, and students of religion who don't believe like we do, they admit that there's nothing comparable to the story of the Bible. So Abraham believed God. God counted him as righteous, not because of what he had done, but because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Now, read this with me because I want this one to get deep in your soul. Let's start from the beginning. And so it happened. And so it happened, just as the scriptures say, Abraham believed God. 
And God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, but not by faith alone. Now, wait a minute. Pastor, you just told us we're saved by faith alone. And James is saying, by what we do. He's, are Paul and James disagreeing with each other? Well, we know there are no contradictions in the Bible, and there's really no disagreement here. It sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. The issue here, listen, the issue here is an empty profession of faith. Remember my illustration about the profession of marriage, legally married, but spiritually divorced. No relationship. Two separate lives. And sometimes those people have said to me, I don't really count myself as married, but I am legally married. So it's important that we understand what James is talking about is somebody that makes a profession of faith, but there's no possession of a relationship. Because if there's a possession of a relationship, like in marriage, there will be growing love, there will be growing intimacy, there will be growing uh, uh, consummation of that marriage in, in vision and in what we do in life, each trying to make the other successful. What is professed must be possessed, is what I'm trying to say. The presence of true faith will produce good fruit. And Paul agrees with that. And James agrees with that. He's saying if good works do not follow in our relationship, our faith is not genuine. If I don't do life with Becky, I may have a profession, but there is no possession. What I professed, I do not possess. And so that's what he's getting at. Good works never justify us. Only Jesus Christ dying at the cross, shedding his blood for our sins. It's the work of Jesus that justifies and saves us. It's never anything we do to save ourselves. Because if that was the case, then how good would we have to be? We would get to heaven and we would say, have I satisfied the minimum that it takes to get into heaven? And that was the argument in the 70s and the 80s. And that is the argument that's starting to erupt again. And we need to be clear just what it means to be saved by faith. Now, let me give you an illustration of this because all of us are going to have our faith tested at some time. And this is a little bit of a humorous illustration. God calls Moses. Now, we've gone forward hundreds of years. God calls Moses from the backside of the desert and says, Moses, Mo. Let's call him Big Mo. Big Mo, I am going to save my people from their sins. And Mo goes, oh, cool. That is awesome. So God tells him how he's going to do that. Big Mo travels back to Pharaoh. He tells the people of God, God's heard your prayers. God is going to save you. God is going to deliver you from the Egyptians. You will no longer be slaves. And everybody's going, that's our man Mo. We knew he would come back. He was so excited about Mo. Listen, the Bible says in Exodus 4, 31, then the people of Israel were convinced that the Lord had sent Moses and Aaron. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down in worship. They were convinced. They were 
fully persuaded God was going to save them. And God did save them. He got them out of Egypt. He delivered them from slavery. And all of a sudden, Pharaoh began to think to himself, I can't let my slave labor go. I can't run my brick factories. I can't build my pyramids. I can't build my cities without my slaves. And so he changes his mind. He goes after the slaves with this great army. They get trapped between Pharaoh and the Red Sea. And the people panic. They were convinced. They were fully persuaded one moment God was going to set them free. And now they turn on Big Mo and they say, you jerk, you idiot, you dummy. They scream out at him. Why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you, why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than to be a corpse in the wilderness. How many of you know they never said that to Moses? They never said that back in Egypt. You see, they were fully convinced of one thing until the crisis hit. And you can be fully convinced of something until the crisis hits. And thank God for crisis, because crisis always reveals what's in my heart. Now, you need to understand, I believe they were sincere when they rejoiced that God was going to save them. I truly believe they were sincere. But when they got into the crisis, their belief turned out to be very fickle. Their belief turned out not to really stand up to the test of the crisis. My wife, I love beef stew during the wintertime. When the weather gets cold, I don't particularly care for it in the summertime, but the wintertime, I just love the gravy and the carrots and the potatoes. I'm getting hungry now talking about it. My wife went to the grocery store this week. She didn't buy beef stew. And the reason she didn't buy beef stew was beef stew meat was over $16 a pound. Is that right? Over $16 a pound. Now, I'm not going to tell you the grocery store that was at. But she said, $16? I stood up at the table and I lifted my hands to the Lord. I said, oh God, I thank you that this crisis, this economic crisis, the price of gas, the price of groceries, I thank you that the price, all of this is just revealing in my heart how much I trust you and love you. How many of you know I didn't do that? It's not what I did. You see, People always tell me, oh, I don't trust in money. That's because they have money. But then when prices go up or the economy gets rocky or they lose money, then they begin to panic because their trust is in money. How many of you know our trust is not in the economy, our trust is in God? We have seen God pull us through time and time and time again. You see, I make a lot of professions that sometimes the Lord tests my profession. How many of you found that to be true? The Lord will test your professions. I really believe in the equality of marriage. Let me just be frank with you here right now. I just, I want to be transparent. I believe in the equality of men and women. I believe in the equality of home and in the marriage. I believe that we should share equally whatever housework has to be done, whatever chores have to be done. I want you to know that because of this mutual submission that my wife and I have, where we have this equality, unfortunately, I end up doing most of the work 
work in the house, and she is losing her opportunity to be blessed by serving me because I end up doing more serving for her. I do more cooking. I do more laundry. I vacuum more. How many of you know that I can lie from time to time as well? (laughs) You see, my profession of faith is that I believe in the equality and mutual submission, but I can tell you this. Becky does far, far more to make her house a home than I've ever done or ever will do. I can tell you this, that Becky goes always far, far beyond the minimum requirement because of a possession of a relationship that she has with Jesus Christ that in everything she does, she wants to honor God. You see, God allows these crises to come into our hearts to dispel our illusions. God allows these crises to come in our hearts so that we realize the difference between what we think we believe and what we really do believe in our hearts. A lady in our congregation gave me $5 after I'd used an illustration where I didn't have any money in my pocket. And normally I always keep a little folding money in my pocket. Not much, but just a little bit of folding money. And so she came to me after the service and she gave me a $5 bill. And she said to me, never spend this $5 and you'll always have $5 in your pocket. Well, I have kept my word. I promised her I would never spend that $5. Well, a few weeks later, she came back to me and I told her I still had my $5. And then she said to me, but if you ever need that $5, you feel free to spend it. Well, I still have that $5, and I look at it every single day because it's a reminder to me that God gives without any strings attached. Do you see what I'm saying? Doesn't try to control. He gives freely without any strings attached. I believe that. I live my life on that. You see, my profession of faith will tell you a lot about my life whether or not I live up to my professions of faith. I believe in gravity. So when I'm hanging Christmas lights, I'm never doing this off the ladder because I believe in gravity. I had a friend in Georgia fell three foot off the ladder. It broke his neck and he died right there on the scene and left behind a beautiful young family. I believe in coffee. I believe that coffee helps me to have a good day, a great day. And so I get up in the morning and I brew a cup of coffee and I drink it heartily as unto the Lord and it just helps me get going. Thank God for coffee. I had a little bit this morning in case you haven't noticed. You see, what you believe in, what you profess, you will know whether somebody's profession is true by the fruit of their life. And that was what James and Paul both were saying. Faith without fruit is dead. You made a profession, but you don't have the possession. But the fruit isn't what saves you. It's Jesus who saves you. Now, I didn't have time to tell the first service this. Listen, because when Jesus comes into your heart, nothing is impossible. Because Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. You see, without Jesus, you're just doing the minimum in life. You're existing. Or you may build a great company, but without Jesus, you're on that broad and that narrow way. I mean, that broad way that leads to destruction. But with Jesus, with Jesus, you're on that narrow path that leads to life. This is a little lengthy, but listen to what Martin Luther said. Now remember, 
He's the one that nailed those 95 theses to the doors. And that's where we attribute the Protestant Reformation beginning. Grace alone, faith alone, the glory belongs to God alone, the Bible alone. Those, this is where all this comes from. Faith is a living, unshakable confidence in God's grace. It is so certain that someone would die a thousand times for it. This kind of trust in and knowledge of God's grace makes a person joyful, confident, and happy with regard to God and all creatures. This is what the Holy Spirit does by faith. Through faith, a person will do good to everyone without coercion, willingly and happily. He will serve everyone, suffer everything for the love and praise of God who has shown him such grace. It is impossible to separate works from faith as burning and shining from fire. Therefore, be on guard against your own false ideas and against the chatterers who think they are clever enough to make judgments about faith and good works, but who are in reality the biggest fools. Ask God to work faith in you, otherwise you will remain eternally without faith, no matter what you try to do or fabricate. You see, the real test of the profession is how you live. That's what Luther was saying about faith. So what does it mean to be saved? By faith, excuse me, by grace through faith alone? Is it what Jesus did at Calvary was sufficient? And then once I'm saved, once I'm in possession of that relationship, and everybody starts at a different place, you may come from a family where you had lots of family devotions and prayer time. You may come from another religion and you've never even heard about this saving faith. But it's not your faith that saves you. It's Jesus Christ and what he did for you. I'm going to close. Let's look at this growth work. So what do I do? I trust in Jesus Christ. I trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. You see, I told you before, I was not really impressed with Abraham. My hero is not Abraham, nor is it even Moses. My hero in the Bible is Jesus Christ. Sometimes I'm asked, who in the Bible would you most like to be like? And that's an easy answer for me. I want to be like Jesus. That's nice when people say they want to be like David, or they want to be like Paul, or they want to be like Mary. That's nice. But I want to be like Jesus. You know that we're adopted parents. And so many times people have said to us, Ben, Andrew, Chris, Amy, you can tell they're your children. You can tell they're so much like you in this or that. Let me tell you something. When Jesus Christ adopted you, and made you his son or your daughter, and you're in possession of that relationship, you will become more and more like Jesus. Why don't you look at your neighbor this morning and say, I see you becoming more and more like Jesus. Did you do that? I see you becoming. I, I, I talked to a mom this week. She is in possession of a relationship, a profession she made Unlike some women who've had children, she's in profession and she's working to help her son achieve his dreams. 
It's a comfortable life before, but he had a dream. And so this week, as she was telling me her story and what she was doing, I just made a little note. It's not her working that made her a mom. It's the profession of her love for her son that's caused her to go to work and with her husband help make their son's dream come true. Does that make sense? The more you're in this relationship. So be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not panic before them. For the Lord your God will personally go ahead of you. He will never fail you nor abandon you. Whatever the crisis is, whatever the crisis is, God says, don't panic. Don't be afraid. The pandemic will be over. The rocky economy will eventually be over. But God will always be faithful. Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller wrote in a book, he said, he said, when those Israelites were going through the Red Sea, God used the, the winds and he parted the Red Sea and the Israelites were crossing on dry ground. Some of them were going, in your face, Pharaoh, in your face. Our God reigns, our God is big. Some of them were going through going, we're all gonna die. We're all going to die. We're all going to die. There are these walls of water on either side of them. Pharaoh chases them into the, to the, to the Red Sea. He chases them right in. But they get through, and boom, God releases the winds, and the chariot wheels get mired in mud, and the waters cover and destroy the armies of Pharaoh. What do you take from that? Luke 137, the Word of God will never, never fail. Second thing is, focus on Jesus this week. Just focus on Jesus. All week long, just keep your mind. There was a song we used to sing when I was a teenager. We've sung it a few times here during communion. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face that the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and His grace. Two of our core doctrines that we've looked at. And then I'm going to ask you to stand with me right now, and we're going to pray. And then this whole week long, I want you to focus on this one phrase. You are a friend of God. You are a friend of God. Live as God's friend this week. Don't live in terror, but live the possession of your profession. That what you professed, you actually possess. That Jesus Christ has saved you from your sins. Not because of the size of your faith or the quality of your faith, but because what Christ did at Calvary in rising from the dead, it was more than enough. Can you say amen? So, Heavenly Father, I pray right now that in the name of Jesus, that each of us, oh Lord, will remind ourselves this week, it's all about you. It's what you have done in us and through us. Without you, we can do nothing. And we are neither saved because of what we do or how big or how little it is but we are saved because we have faith in you, Jesus. 
And that faith is a gift from you. For you give to every man and woman the measure of faith. And so thank you that all the glory and all the honor and all the power, it all belongs to you, Jesus. Now, while every head is bowed, if you're not a follower of Jesus or if you used to follow him real closely and you've wandered away from that commitment, would you this morning just pray this prayer with me if you're ready to give your heart and life to Jesus. If you believe that Jesus and Jesus alone is enough, would you pray this with me? Say, Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to save me from my sins. That's our moral failures. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving and loving me. I believe in you, Lord, and I trust you. And I ask you that I will simply grow in that relationship of faith and trust in you so that I may have this flourishing relationship. For it's in Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen and amen. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself said, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. May you walk in an intimate, personal relationship with him. May you hear his voice inside of you this week. May you encounter him in fresh ways, and may you have the joy of introducing somebody to Jesus Christ this week, and may he make you prosperous and productive in all you do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen, amen, and amen. God bless you. Consider yourselves dismissed this morning.